Welcome back everybody. So today we're going to dive into something that a lot of you have been asking us to cover. We're going to look at menopause and hormone replacement therapy and that's just the, the beginning of it all. There's a lot more we're going to dive into. Uh, and of course, if we want to understand menopause, we have to talk to a man. Isn't that right, Dr. Rosenzweig? <laughs> well, I certainly have <laughs> devoted 30 years of my career to menopause. So yeah, I'm a, good <laughs> a good place to start. Well, the work you've done has been incredible. I mean, so just so everybody knows here, Dr. David Rosensweet built something called the menopause method. 600 people, practitioners, I should say, plus are using it, and over 12,000 patients have been healed through it. So you certainly do have the experience, and we're very happy that you're here to share with us. And so many women don't even understand what this thing is, and they're looking forward or are anticipating or are scared of this thing that's coming or someone are in it, and we're going to break that down today. So menopause method. What, what drew you there? Why did you even go in that direction? I started out a functional medicine doctor long before there was a name. In the early 1990s, one of my uh, women patients who was in her mid-40s that I knew very well came into my office, opened up my consultation door before the day started, no appointment, walked up to my desk and pounded her fist on it, Deborah, and um, <laughs> She said, look, don't think you know me. I'm telling you, I'm going crazy. And this is not a minor yeah. thing. Don't pretend it is. And as the way the universe has worked for me, three weeks earlier, I had spoken to a world expert on progesterone, gave her some progesterone. And three weeks later, I get a letter from Deborah saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this stuff. I'm totally myself again. Right. Progesterone. And that was very impressive to me. Very rarely do you run across something that can be that effective and make that big of a difference. But I didn't really try and control my practice. Before I knew it, there was a lot of women in menopause that Deborah had referred. And one thing led to another, and I decided to specialize in it because there was a lot of moving parts. Hormones have a complexity to it. Women have an individuality to them. Men have an individuality. So I decided to just hunker down on hormones. It was right up my alley. I really enjoy biochemistry. And that's how it happened. And not only have you figured it out for your patients, but I know you've trained practitioners. I've seen you speak at A4M. Just so everybody knows, it's probably the world's largest anti-aging conference and sort of functional medicine health conference. And Dr. Rosen speaks been on, on stage coaching all of us on how to do a better job. A number of books also that people want to learn more. So you found that path you came upon progesterone and somebody started to feel better. And this has become a big part of your work. Your science is this, you know, bioidentical hormone replacement. And right now I know there's some pushback, maybe because it works so well. I don't know what the reason is. So what, what's going on there in terms of you're running something called the Coalition to Protect Bioidentical Hormones. And my first thought is, why do we need to protect it? What, what's this outside force that we're scared of? It's a challenging subject, but the story is that women have been treated with hormones and men have been treated with hormones for a long time. And in the 1940s, the pharmaceutical industry caught on to this and produced something called Premarin and Prempro, horse urine derived estrogens. And by 2002, there were 18 million women on this on these hormones. 40% of American women in menopause were wow. taking these hormones to great advantage. It was the most popular and profitable 
pharmaceutical of all times. And these women did well, a lot better. And yet in the 1980s, a colleague of mine and a dear friend of mine simultaneously knew that pure, molecularly pure, identical estrogen and progesterone and testosterone was being made available, that the pharmaceutical industries were refining the, the uh, precursors to hormones that came out of soy and, and yams and making them into these extremely pure, same molecule as a woman's ovary produces or a man's testicle produces. And my friend Jonathan Wright and uh, my friend Jim Hernzer simultaneously said, why don't we use this stuff? Why do we yeah. want to get it from uh, pregnant mares? I mean, I understood why the pharmaceutical industry turned to pregnant mares. They needed a source of a large amount of hormones for the right. whole population. But it, by this time, it was easy, to, easy enough for pharmaceutical industry to convert from soy. So they brought bioidentical hormones, same molecule, to the American public. And that, that started growing. But no problem. They were coexisting. Some women were being treated with the compound of bioidentical hormones. That's what I was using exclusively. It made a lot more sense to me being a natural guy and an organic guy to choose the same molecule. And Premarin and Prempro were thriving. And a lot of good was being done. But outcome, sorry for the long story here, Kashifa. No, no, so that's just great. So uh, 2002, this false reporting of a medical study occurred. And it scared women. It scared healthcare providers. Um, they said that there was increased risk of breast cancer with PremPro. And it was false. Mm. It was not, that was not in the study. It was statistically insignificant. But the, it exploded out into the press. And what physicians were taught and what women were taught is that taking hormones increased the risk for breast cancer. It's false. Yeah. That was not in the study. So, um, and so the market share of 18 million, the most profitable and uh, popular drug of all time, plummeted to low millions. And by the time it had recovered, a study was done in 2016, there were 6 million women instead of 18 million American women now on hormones, and over half of them were on compounded bioidentical hormones. So in my humble, non-humble opinion, the loss of market share was the major reason for pushback. Sometimes in life and in politics and in medicine, some economic motivation is ruling the day and controlling the story. And I think that's what's happening. So the pushback is coming, and I think uh, from those who want their money back as they see it. So that's, that's the unfortunate story. So compounding pharmacists all over the United States and uh, physicians who are prescribing these to millions and millions of American women were uniting and were trying to educate and encourage the FDA to be a big tent. We're not trying to stop pharmaceutical products. No way. We want women to be able to choose and men be able to choose what they think is best that conforms to the best science. So we're uh, educating the public. I appreciate being on your 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 podcast today uh, to get no, to No, it's a pleasure. I, uh, this story of we found something that is exactly what people need and it's not masking a symptom, symptom 
and it's solving the root and now they feel better and all of a sudden there's a scandal in the media telling us why it's broken um all too all too familiar right not the first time not the last time so and this is why i understand the coalition where i didn't realize the pressure that was there most of us think of bioidentical hormones as a pharma product and don't realize that because it's so keep in mind menopause you can have anxiety depression physical neurological issues you can have digestive issues like there's 10 different products i can sell you versus this one thing turns it all off so makes it very clear why you're saying what you're saying and why there's this pushback and your coalition is needed and thank you for sticking your neck out to do this work because i do know so many women that if they didn't have their hormones would be struggling so how do you then is what so people used to think when i talk to people I shouldn't say used to, they still do. When they hear the word bioidentical, they think that it means it's personalized for them. But what you actually mean by identical, what you just laid out so easy to understand, is that it's identical to what is meant to be in the human body, meaning not horse urine, but yeah. what comes from soy and these other plants are identical. So is there any other level of personalization required? How do you know what this person needs? Is it progesterone, like you said? Is it estradiol? Is it estriol? Like what, how, where do you start when it comes to that? Well, that I'd, I'd like to be clear that the pharmaceutical manufacturers are changing as well, and they're producing some products that are early stage to me, but they're bioidentical patches, gels. And they're using pure estradiol. There's something to be said about improving that. We're a big tent. We want the whole world of treating men and women to thrive. But one thing that's that is sure in women's medicine, for example, is that women are so individual and yeah. there's four hormones. And so some women, they're really rich in estrogen and leaner in progesterone. Others are lean in, in estrogen, rich in progesterone. They throw testosterone. The infinite variations are enormous. Some young women need this much estrogen to be healthy, fertile, regular periods. Other women need three times that much. And I'm just talking right. about estrogen there. So the human variability is enormous. Well, the compounding world addresses that beautifully. We can customize. And we mm. go through a process with women and with men that takes two to six months to dial in the right balance, the optimal balance, and to test it out. And it's, so it's highly customized. And this is something the pharmaceutical industry is not going to be able to mimic. You can't produce 50 different estrogens. You yeah. can't mass produce them. But the compounding pharmacist can take the basic materials and through a doctor's prescription, customize it to each individual woman. So it is customized. And that's an important thing. And we eventually confirm that with testing. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. Now, don't make me wrong. Women who are on hormones, on patches, on Premarin and Prempro, derived from horse urine, they're doing a lot better. The women who are on Premarin and Prempro are at less risk for breast cancer, heart attack, and stroke than women who are not. So I don't, right. we're a big tent. We want physicians and nurse practitioners and women to choose what appeals most to them and not be excluded from the excellent, elegant, and I think necessary work of customizing that can occur with bioidenticals. Mm. 
Yeah, this is where compounding is such an awesome force that pe- most people don't even know is a, an available option. And for other right. things too, you see pain creams and other things that are compounded, just need to find a compounding pharmacy. So our two cents here is that if we understand the genome, we know the metabolic pathway for hormones and we understand the genes that drive each step. And so all of a sudden there can be this personalized map of, well, why is it that this person needs a little bit more estrogen or why is it that when I give them X, it leads to hair loss, et cetera, because what are they doing with those hormones that I'm giving them? You know, and it reminds me of a story of us working with NHL hockey players who were given androgen gel packs like testosterone and they ended up growing man boobs. They had gynomastia because the CYP19A1 gene converts all that testosterone into estrogen. And they didn't realize that of those, you know, hundreds that were going through it, a few of them were in that genomic profile, let's say. So that's just one layer of personalization. How do you measure? So we're seeing it from the sort of pre, here's your map, here's who you are. You're kind of seeing it in real time, like I'm working on you actively as a patient. What do you do to monitor and understand uh, what somebody actually needs? How it occurs in real time is that I'm a physician and women make appointments because they're not feeling well. And a lot of them don't even know that it's from menopause because they're learning about it. But I'm sitting there listening to this woman in her mid-30s and mid-40s, and she's got a long list of profound uh, issues. And I can tell, these. let's deal with the hormones first. Because part of what's happening in human life is women and men were peaking out in our hormone output at, at 20. Then we're gradually declining. And these are, hormones are so powerful. They're the most powerful biochemicals in our body that we feel that decline. Men, for example, right. can lose their erection right. from the decline. They can lose their drive. We can lose our muscles. We can lose a lot of stuff. Well, women lose their mood and their vagina health. And they get pain on intercourse and they can't sleep and they're getting anxiety and depression because these hormones are so much a part of emotional well-being. And so they're telling us this. They're not sleeping. They're getting hot flashes. And the story is very clear to me. Oh, they're losing their ovarian hormones. They're midlife. They're going through perimenopause and menopause. And you're saying this is as early as their 30s. Yeah. But where it really hits is when the periods stop. So in their mid-40s. So then then the symptoms can really get severe. The symptoms are more subtle. They can get the, in their 30s, they can get the return of PMS. They can get some subtle mood issues. They can lose their drive, their, their ability to make decisions every day. It's more subtle in their 30s, but it's there. Well, women in, th- in their 30s, sometimes this hormonal decline of all four of these hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and DHEA, and even thyroid, they can start feeling that well. They can start sleep, not sleeping well. They can be losing their libido. They can lose their basic decision-making drive, their um, natural clarity. They can lose their cognitive ability. A lot of symptoms. They can get PMS return when they didn't have it. And so we can, we, I know these symptoms. So I say, oh, okay, sounds like you're getting low in estrogen and progesterone. Let's start low and give you these three or four hormones and gradually increase them. And what do we expect? If I'm correct, 
They're going to get alleviation of these symptoms. They're going to get the restoration of vaginal health so intercourse doesn't hurt. They're going to get reclarification of their mind so they're thinking clearly again. They're going to get their natural decision-making drive returned. They're going to get these alleviate. They're going to, hot flashes are going to disappear. We're start. We're working with four hormones and we're gradually replenishing them. These hormones are so powerful that if we go too high, they're going to get symptoms of overdose. If we give them too much uh, estrogen, for example, they're going to get breast tenderness. If we give them too much progesterone. They're going to get the great calming effect of progesterone, but they're going to wake up groggy like they were they'd taken a sleeping pill overnight. So there's these bumpers of symptom caused by insufficiency, symptom alleviation relieved by the restoration of hormones, or if you go too high, you wind up getting symptoms of overdose. So we do a clinical process of gradually increasing these hormones to alleviate symptoms and then when they say the magic words, oh, my God, I'm myself again, that's what we're looking yeah. for. Yeah. We test them. We do this exquisite 24-hour urine hormone testing because the final dosages need to be confirmed by testing, and we'll do some tweaking once we're looking at the test. And that's the process. Mm. So a lot of – we probably touched on a, a lot of it already, but – this menopause method that you write about that you train people on, I know we don't, it probably take us a few hours to go through the whole thing and we have a little bit of time, but so what are the key elements of this unique modality you have that you teach people that you call this menopause method? You know, we call it the menopause method, but I think what's happened is because I specialized and just decided to take on menopause and andropause, we're just unveiling a proper approach to women. So it's really right. the women's method or it's really the men's method. I think that's all we've done. You know, uh, diabetes doctors, what they do is they uncover the best way to treat diabetes. And it's not the diabetes method. It's just the best way to treat them. And I think that's all we've done. But there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of uh, details that we love to do. So that's the method, and we teach physicians and nurse practitioners and clinical compounding pharmacists who are advising in how to do this job really well. And some of the features are individualize, take every single woman and walk through a process with her. It's going to take two to six months to dial it in and get it right, and then confirm it by 24-hour urine hormone testing. And another feature is we like the compounding pharmacist to dispense the hormones in certified organic oils. The mm. best way to do estrogen, the safest way, is not orally or testosterone. It's topically. You apply it to the skin. The common ways that these were done initially is these hormones were put up in solvents. And I'm a holistic doc, and I saw that about 20 years ago. And I said, I don't want to deliver the solvents with the hormones. So right. we came up with a suspension that's certified organic oils. And so that's another feature of the method. We think that's the way to go because your women are applying these hormones. Men are applying these hormones for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Toxicity is an issue. We don't want to add to their toxic by using strong solvents. So mm -hmm. we use these organic oils 
that are suspension. So you got to shake the bottle in the morning. Got to do that with it. People are using that daily? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. That's what the ovaries do. They're putting out these hormones daily. That's what the testicles are doing. <laughs> They're putting right. out our, our, our beloved testosterone daily. I see a lot of protocols where, especially with men, it's like testosterone take it once a week or once every three days, which doesn't add up because that's not the circadian rhythm of hormone flow. So how is the body utilizing in its, you know, the most efficient manner if you're not doing what the body actually does, right? So I haven't seen many people that dose it daily like that. That's awesome that you tuned it into like something that works that way. Well, I think it's, I mean, these were early attempts to address in men low testosterone. So they right. could, so an injectable testosterone was made up and it's been around for decades. And you know what? It did a lot of good. And the original yeah. injections, they were doing them once a month. So what happens the day you inject, you get this super high level and then gradually over the course of the month, it goes down and then you get symptoms yeah. again. You give another injection. Well, people refine that and they realize that once a week was better than once a month injecting. And then they realize it's even healthier if you do it twice a week, but they start bumping into needle phobia. So a lot yeah. of reason that that's, that's uh, twice a week, Kashif, is that's about what men are willing to do and inject with needles. Yeah, that's not sense. physiologic. And you get that burst. And you mentioned it earlier. You said that some men are going to convert that testosterone into estrogen and get increased breast size, for example. And yeah. we think that part of the reason that that happens is not only genetics, you're sure naming that one, but there's also that burst where you get that high level where the body goes, wait yeah. a minute, we got to convert some of this. This is not, uh, it's too much testosterone for us. And so daily application is the physiologic way to do it. And it's so beautiful. You can just apply it. That's what I do every morning after my shower. I apply my testosterone once a day and it works beautifully. And I think a third very important feature is that we find testing is imperative. And the gold okay. standard in testing has been since the late 1960s, the 24-hour urine hormone test. In our group, in the interest of uh, trying to broaden the ability for men and women to have access, we're doing these studies to compare other forms of testing, but yet we haven't come up with it yet. You know, blood testing does fabulous work but not for when a man or a woman is taking hormones. Because when do you draw the blood? After they took their morning yeah. dose or after they did their night before dose? You're, there's a pharmacokinetic thing where when they apply the hormone, you get a spike and then it gradually decreases. So when do you draw it? 12 right. hours later, four hours later? Well, you can get a rough approximation from blood, but the 24-hour urine hormone test totally takes care of when they took the hormone. It doesn't matter. It's all going to, they took it within 24 hours. It's all going to show up properly. So we're very strong advocates. Our group is doing comparative testing. After, uh, later today, I meet with uh, two major laboratories. We meet once a week to try and sort all this out. But we're definitely 24-hour urine hormone tests. And I like to give you my best shot. I'm not mentioning yeah. other tests. I'm not mentioning them because 
to me, there's too many issues involved. We've seen that also where like somebody, you know, a woman will have a green smoothie instead of her regular meal. And, you know, the dim or whatever's in there will literally alter hormone levels. A man decides to do a heavy leg day and boost his testosterone and it alters. If there's one thing to understand what's in the blood, there's another thing to understand why it's there, you know, what the habits were that drove it. So your body's constantly responding to whatever you're doing, including your hormones. And so it's more like a rolling average of understanding, you know, what does your week look like? And then what time of the month did you do it for the woman? And that's another question I want to ask you, which is when you have their circadian rhythm, for men, for men it's easy. We have a daily cycle. It's the same thing every day. But for women, there's these multiple phases of the uh, menstrual cycle. So how do you intervene when it comes to dosing when the, the circadian rhythm is so different throughout the month? Well, that's a really good question. And really what we're talking about is women in their 30s. And really what we're dealing with is instead of putting out these rich amounts of the four ovarian hormones when they were 20, they've gone into a decline. And then you're bringing in that the hormone levels are different throughout the cycle. So how do you do that? And it turns out to be easier than one would think. Because really, it's that general depletion that is the main driving force that's getting them into trouble. So we don't have to follow that daily change in the output. For example, I'm outlining what estrogen looks like through the course of the month. This is day one, menstruating. It rises to day 12, it drops uh, mid-cycle and then it rises again. Uh, that's, that's estrogen, whereas progesterone right. is zero pretty much and then it comes in in the second three weeks. We don't have to follow that because what we're really dealing with is the general decline of all four of the hormones. So if we replenish estrogen and progesterone up to reasonable levels, that's all the body really needs. We don't have to adjust to the cycle. I did some experiments in trying to make the daily doses different for every woman based on following that monthly variability. And I did spreadsheets. I loved it. I'm an Excel lover. <laughs> I, I, I gave out different dosages for every day to try and mimic the variant cycle. And here's what happened to me, Kashi. Women came back after their, for their annual visit and they said, I said, how are you doing? They said, great. But I really didn't like that variability. It wasn't hard to do, but I didn't feel good. So what I did was I stopped doing the variable and I went into the daily regular dosages that you had done before we did variable. And uh, it feels great. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't like the variability. I like just giving a steady dose every day. The women taught me one woman after another that the variability was a cute idea, but I didn't have to do that. Just replenishing a certain small amount every day in a young menstrual woman is what worked best. Yeah, I get what you're saying. So essentially, we're saying that there's an existing circadian rhythm and flow like you mapped it out. And what you're doing is not dealing with the actual micro measurement of where they're at. It's more like if I get you to a better level to what it used to be, you already you used to do well back then. 
right? So I'm trying, just trying to get you back to where you were. So the starting point, that initial fuel to the fire is the right dose to get that whole cycle flowing at the right level. So never thought of it that way. I've always, because I know that when some women take supplements, for example, they'll take DIM or other stuff, that there are certain days where they may get a headache and there are certain days where they feel amazing because of the circadian rhythm. But uh, I get what you're saying. You're not masking altering your providing and the body will go then go do its job because you're giving it what it needs to start with which is cool that's right and then with men first of all what age are you starting and what are the main drivers why are men coming to you saying i think i need help well the main drivers are symptoms resulting from insufficient testosterone i'd say the most profound driver is loss of potent erectile function. Okay. Now there's many preludes to that. If young men are paying attention, we used to wake up every morning with an erection. That is the yeah. sign, robust, youthful testosterone output. And then as testosterone declines, we tend to lose that morning erection. It's not consistent. Mm. And then men even have difficulty with intercourse maintaining their erection during intercourse. Their libido drops, our mood changes. The mood changes are subtle. They're taking place over years. Get a little more irritable, get a little less motivated, lose some of that natural, gorgeous male aggression that gets us really creative and in action. It sort of calms down. Don't feel like going to the gym today. But the main driver is that erectile loss. And men know that and they feel it mm. and they feel it along with lost libido. That's what drives most men to get hormone replenishing. Mm. So I've heard that sort of atrophy, uh, plaque buildup, just like you have in the rest of your vasculature around the body, there can be plaque buildup in the sort of penile shaft, uh, nitric oxide delivery. So are you saying that if you deal with this one thing, the hormones, the testosterone, that the outcome is so great that the other stuff just doesn't matter? The other stuff does matter. Okay. And so you're bringing in the second major tool that to me is one of the greatest pharmaceutical developments that have ever occurred. And I'm really quoting a world expert on males. It's the develop of that nitric oxide, improve the circulation thing called Viagra and Cialis. Right. That's, that, they are fantastic. And they not only... They were actually, what they do is they, they increase the health of the penile arteries and allow for the return of a fuller circulation of blood, which is really what makes the penis erect. Mm -hmm. Dynamically, it's really the return of full circulation of blood. And Cialis and Viagra were designed for that. They were working on how can we improve coronary circulation? How can we improve arterial circulation? We know, as you mentioned, that nitric oxide, which is the principal dilator, isn't working as well. Can we improve it? Well, what they discovered when they were trying to improve circulation in general is that men were reporting erection strength. And all yeah. of a sudden... Viagra and Cialis, which were designed for cardiovascular drugs, turned out to have this humongous, massive market for erectile function. 
So we like right. them both, Rashif. We uh, we feel like every man, as hormones are declining, there's more moving parts than just the testosterone decline, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. But it's also that arterial piece that you're naming, the loss of that nitric acid, uh, acid function. And so Viagra and Cialis, we recommend this for everyone. I'm assuming they're all going to accept that recommendation and be very happy with it. You know. <laughs> uh, and how do you manage when you're dealing with, uh, you're, so you're now working with a man, his testosterone levels have been increased. And there's something to be said about DHT and prostate health and sort of toxic testosterone and inflammatory hair loss, for example. How do you deal with that? Is there a, a sort of preliminary screening that helps you understand? Or are you kind of tracking and managing it as you go along? Right on. This is really important. And um, we're testing every man up front. We're doing blood tests, and you named it. We're testing a lot of moving parts because there are men, there's some kind of rumor out there that men are easier than women. And I don't find that to be so at all. It's mm-hmm. just as fascinating to deal with men because of the moving parts. So you mentioned the hormone DHT, dihydrotestosterone which is a very powerful form of testosterone. But if you get too much of DHT, you're going to wind up with hair loss. You're going to wind up with balding. And Mm. DHT is extremely important. We love DHT. It's a natural male hormone. But if we start administering testosterone in too great amounts, we're going to get excessive DHT. It's excessive DHT, which is problematic. So we're monitoring for that. When we do an initial blood uh, test, we're looking at free testosterone, total testosterone, DHT, and several other things as well. We're monitoring something called sex hormone binding globulin. There's these wonderful things that we can monitor that if we're pushing a man too hard, if we're getting those dosages too high, all kinds of things happen. Too much estradiol occurs. Too much estrone occurs. So what do we do? We test the man in the beginning and we're monitoring him as we're going. And we're paying attention because it's pretty easy to overdose a man. For one thing, the shots are pretty easy to overdose and give wind up with too much DHT, wind up with too much estradiol. Right. In fact, men routinely were on shots around something called prevent too much estradiol by taking a drug called aromatase inhibitor. Well, it's a smart strategy, but I say, why give them overdose in the first place? Don't dose twice a week. Dose daily so you don't have to do these high peaks that's going to make the body go, hey, there's too much testosterone in there. We better, we're going to convert some estrogen. So you're, you're naming a lot of the moving parts and we're paying attention to all of them. If you want to keep diving deeper with your prescription for life with the Unpilled Podcast, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I've also written my first book, The DNA Way, Unlock the Secrets of Your Genes to Reverse Disease, Slow Aging, and Achieve Optimal Wellness. It's now available for pre-sale on Amazon. Take a look and enjoy, guys. See you next time. The overdosing in men being so easy because, you know, estrogen is being made from testosterone and being that root foundational hormone. And 
the levels are just higher in men. Even if a woman is androgenized and more leaning towards testosterone, it's still not going to be the same as an androgenized male. Oh, yeah. uh, and so never consider that, but you're right on that, that the sensitivity of I this root thing, testosterone, which is the man's goal typically, is going to eventually drip down into estrogen. So it's just so much more sensitive and finicky. And then you're going to have men that overdo it. You're going to tell them take half a whatever shot. They're probably going to take three of them, right? <laughs> and just the male and mind. They're going to feel good, you... and you're naming it. They're going to feel yeah. good. They're going to feel super powerful, and their libido yeah. is going to get high, and they're going to get stronger muscles. But they're also, as you're saying, they're going to get extra estrogen, and they're going to get extra breast tissue, for example, and they're going to get extra DHT, and that's going to that could lead to hair loss, and they're going to get elevated sex hormone binding globulin, which is a real tricky thing to be dealing with. And so the easy thing to do is give daily doses, give the right amount, don't cause these huge peaks, and monitor. When a man says, I feel good. When a man says, I feel good. Gosh, my erections returned. I'm taking this uh, Viagra type stuff. Uh, My erections returned. The testosterone feels good. We test him. And what did we find out with me? When I started doing this, I was overdosed and I didn't even know it. I felt good. I was sitting up with a testosterone level that I didn't need. And I was raising up my sex hormone binding globulin and I was raising up my estradiol. So we tested, we caught it in time and I had to reduce my dose by over a third of what I was taking. Wow. You just have to pay attention. Pay attention and monitor, which a lot of people don't do. And you're, so what is the right number? Because I know that, so for example, I go to the doctor and they'll tell me like, hey, if you're over 300, you're doing good. And if I pay attention to some biohacking Instagram account, somebody will be like, hey, I did red light therapy on my testicles and I'm at a thousand now and I think I'm getting there. So, you know, what is the actual right number that somebody should be aiming for? Well, it's a multitude of factors, Kashif. We take into account a thing, a lot of things. We want to think that a man's mood is good and that his drive is good and that his erection is decent. This is the bottom line. Because you could have a 300 and you could not have an erection. There's a lot of factors. So we want to... Also know that we're not going too high. A man could feel real good. He could get his testosterone up to a 1,000, and that could be too high for him. How would we know that the man with a 1,000 could be producing too much estradiol and estrone? He could be raising his DHT. He could be raising his sex hormone binding globulin. So we look at all those factors. We look at symptoms. And we don't just accept, God, I feel terrific. Okay, we'll see you next year. No, we don't. He could feel terrific because he's running a 1,400 testosterone and he's running elevated DHT and sex hormone binding globulin and elevated estrogen and testosterone and uh, estrone. So we monitor all of it. Now, it's not rocket science. Once we dial a man in on his initial process, we don't have to test them for a year. We don't have to test them every six months. Once we dial in that process with a man over the course of a couple months, 
where he's got good erection, he's got good motivation, he's got good mood, he's um, and he's uh, f- feeling his his natural sense of aggression and well being. And we've got good testosterone level, good free testosterone level, good DHT, good estrone, good estradiol, and good sex hormone binding globulin. Mm-hmm. When they're all in the right zone, that's when we say, see you next year. It's unlikely <laughs> that your dosage is going to change that much. And if it is, you're going to tell us. You're going to say, gosh, I'm not getting as good, a, I'm not feeling as good as I was. So once we yeah, dial them sure. in, that's 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 great stuff um we don't have to see it but annually we i write enough prescriptions for 12 months for somebody amazing okay and then so just going back uh before we end first of all one thank you for your time you know this was awesome when we talk to women about menopause going back to women for a second it's usually the hot flash it's usually the anxiety and it's weight those are the three big things that we hear i don't know if it's the same for you and then there's this ongoing this is during menopause. We're hearing these things, right? Then it's like, okay, menopause is over. The mood is better. Hot flashes are gone. But my body has permanently changed and this weight won't go away. Is, that resolved, through, is that resolved through hormone treatment or is that something else? Well, weight is a much bigger universe. Now, yeah. hormones definitely relate to weight. For example, if a woman does not have enough estrogen, she's going to gain weight where she doesn't want it. She's going to put it on her hips and her her, her buttocks, and she's not going to like it. And if she has insufficient testosterone, she, she's not metabolically going to function as well. She's going to gain weight. And if she doesn't have enough progesterone, interestingly enough, you need enough progesterone for your thyroid to work properly. Right. But there's so many other moving parts that are so important. So we have a book, Happy Healthy Hormones, and you're welcome to offer this, a PDF version of it for no charge. You can just uh, contact Karina and you could post a link to a no charge version. And we have a whole chapter on weight. Because midlife, there's a lot of things that have taken place. Like, for example... Young people tend to manage their glucose pretty successfully, and they don't put it on as fat. There are a lot of them are thin. Hmm. But as you put pressures on your glucose regulating system over time, you get something called insulin resistance, and it's a recipe for weight gain. So these are all taking place at midlife. This hmm. insulin resistance thing, yeah, it is the perfect recipe for weight gain. And then there's You know, people put a lot of strain on our adrenals and our thyroid. And one thing we do with our thyroid is we just can't, this is is determining the rate at which we burn our food. And when you, it's, it's legendary in medicine that most people lose their thyroid power by midlife. And you got a lot of people who are functionally hypothyroid. You still able to follow me? Yeah, yeah, so they're yeah. not so they're not combining their food with oxygen called metabolism and producing the energy at the rate that they used to and they have symptoms of that so you got to address thyroid and we do in our in our dealing with patients thyroids as important as anything we're doing here and there's more to the story of weight 
getting the motivation to exercise properly. And there's the cumulative effect of you can get away with lousy diet when you're young. At least some young people can, but you can't get away with it forever. And you got to make some major dietary changes. So we cover all this in our book. So it's not just the ovarian hormones. It's no, the it's four physical. ovarian hormones. It's thyroid. It's insulin resistance. Oh, my goodness. That's the big one. That's a very kind of you to offer the book. And we'll definitely we'll share that with everybody. So everybody listening, make sure to look out for that link. We're going to get you that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned thyroid. It's funny because in Canada, where I am, thyroid medication used to be the number one prescribed drug. It, it just it got eclipsed by statins and cholesterolemia because just there was no nobody knew what to do. The root cause that you're talking about is more or less just mask it. Uh, but going back to something that you were saying, which I never interpreted this way, from my understanding, an estrogenized body is more likely to store fat and have more sort of female curves and shape. And an androgenized body is more likely to be sort of slim, call it the runway model, you know, less female features, smaller breasts, smaller hips. And But you're saying that a woman that doesn't have enough estrogen may also store fat in those exact same places. Is what I believe true or is it, or is it more on being either extreme? Well, you're, you're talking about the healthiest of young people and okay. that women vary. There's the woman who is more estrogen rich. So she tends to be curvier, larger breasts, and the curve is partially determined by where fat is deposited. She also tends right. to be shorter of stature, by the way. Uh, this isn't absolute, but the estrogen closes the long bones, so she gets shorter. Whereas there's another woman who has a totally different body type. She's got her estrogen. She's regularly menstruating. She's fertile. She's healthy as can be, but she's got a predominance of a testosterone. She's taller, muscular. Her muscles are more developed. She tends to be athletic. She may be smaller breasted. And then there's the progesterone-ish woman. She's regularly menstruating. She's healthy. She's fertile. She can have babies. But instead of estrogen being the dominant hormone, there's a robust amount of progesterone as well. She tends to be taller and thinner and smaller breasted. But these are all healthy body types. What you're mm -hmm. talking about taking place at menopause is that normal fat distribution. Mm -hmm. That's what you're really bringing up. And that abnormal yeah. fat distribution that occurs at menopause is primarily because of insufficient estrogen, insufficient testosterone, insufficient progesterone, insufficient thyroid, and insulin resistant. These are the mm. prime movers at menopause. And now look at that. There's some potent factors there. So that's just a, another big reason we keep saying the same thing over. You, you cannot deal with the problem at the symptom level. You know, you have to understand the why. And the why isn't only biology. It's also chronology. Like when is it happening? You know, the, the problem of an adolescent and somebody in puberty and somebody who's in fertility age and somebody who's mature and somebody who's in menopause are different problems. And so getting to the root is the only way to solve it. And this is why so many people are stuck. A weight loss problem is not a weight loss problem. It's not a weight loss problem. You're maybe three or four different 
profiles of who you really are at that given time, then that was really an aha moment for me, what you just said, because I've never thought of it that way. It's really awesome. That's a really good summary of it. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you got so much robust thyroid, for example, your metabolism is so energy producing and burning, burn, burn, burn. You got so much energy that you can eat 10 donuts a day or two <laughs> donuts a day. But you can't do that midlife. You don't have that hormonal vigor that allows you to burn, burn, burn. And so you might have moved into adulthood with some habits that, yeah, they worked when you were a thin adolescent. Not yeah. all adolescents are thin these days either. And a lot of these adolescents that are overweight, it isn't just that their thyroids can't keep up with it. It's that they're developing uh, a, a, pro, a prelude to diabetes. They're getting insulin resistant. And they're piling on that weight. So dietary functions, I, I'm sorry to, I don't mean to cloud the field. You did an excellent summary there. Well, what I just heard, here's another summary for you, is if I start to take hormones, I can eat two donuts a day. Ha! I know you're joking, Kashif, or I would, <laughs> I would actually stand here. You're just, no. It's too late. No, okay. Anyways, well, there's a bakery that I there's a bakery not, not that I avoid. Not at midlife. Uh, we can't be consistently uh, eating two donuts, no matter how well we get our hormones balanced. It's, we're not going to achieve that level of powerful metabolism that an adolescent has. It was worth a shot. So <laughs> yeah. Well, th this was really a great conversation. I wanted to thank you because you've been doing this for so long. So you have the nuanced insights that a lot of people don't, you know, and I, I feel like we could have spent an hour just talking about men, an hour just talking about women, an hour just talking about puberty, an hour just talking about menopause. And maybe we'll have you back to, to speak on some of those things in a little more depth. So we will share the book. Thank you for offering that also. I recommend everybody download it. Dr. Roland Sweet has been so kind as to offer it to you for free, which is incredible. And if you feel like you need hormone support, reach out to him because this is what he does. And he's one of the best in the world at it. So uh, get his support. That's what he's here for. So thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. I've learned today, which is amazing. And then again, anybody who wants to learn, we'll have your info here. And thank you again. Thank you, Kashif. It's been an honor to do this with you. I love it when we get into the groove and co-create. Uh, people get more. Yeah. And that's my experience. Yeah of you as an interviewer. Thank you very much. Pleasure.